Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at First, first Listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. Today on Work in Progress, I am thrilled to share a conversation with one of the most compelling creators that I've encountered yet. He's inquisitive, wildly intelligent, and dedicated to taking a deeper look at the world, Mr. Tony De Los Reyes. Tony is an inspiring visual artist who has been creating artwork that explores the complexity of the U.S.-Mexico border for several years now. He began by drawing big picture inspiration from Google Earth imagery, and his work has since evolved into a closer inspection of the border, the walls that have come to define it, and the physical space and communities surrounding it. Tony's work has been featured in many renowned galleries and museums, such as LACMA, the Santa Barbara Museum of Art, the Annenberg Space for Photography, where we first met, and the New Britain Museum of American Art. I fell in love with his Paranoid Architecture series at the Annenberg Space, and I knew then and there that I had to have him on the podcast. In my conversation with Tony, we dive deep into thoughts on artistic beginnings, how we react to tragedy, the power of art, and the importance of examining the lines that divide us. This was such an incredible discussion. Enjoy. Well, I'm so excited to have you on the show today, and thank you for taking the yeah. time. I I first became aware of your work, as you know, um, at the Annenberg Space for Photography. It's one of my favorite places to visit to see art exhibitions in Los Angeles. And I think I have, I also have a little bit of just sort of, what's the, what's the word I'm looking for? Collegiate uh, appreciation for anything Annenberg, because I went to the Annenberg School of Journalism at USC. And your work was a part of four, four pieces of your work were part of this incredible exhibition called Walls 
defend, divide, and the divine. And and the idea behind the exhibition was to explore barriers that were both real and perceived and to look at what these walls have meant to human history through centuries. Um, so, you know, the examination of sort of castles and forts and up to the Berlin Wall and the U.S.-Mexico border. And and it's such an incredible exhibition. And the photography that is up there is is breathtaking. All of it, really. And yet... I was coming around a corner and I, I saw these pieces. There were eight of them, actually, in, in two squares of, of four. And I just, I was speaking to the, the woman who curates the space. And, and I, I was looking kind of over her shoulder. And I finally said, I'm so sorry. I have to go see what those are. Because she was explaining something to me. And I was so distracted. Uh, they, they look like, almost like Joseph Albers pieces. And he's one of my favorite favorite mid-century artists and and I think that's why they caught my eye and and yet the colors rather than being in in you know blocked color temperature uh gradients were so vibrant and and they reminded me of something and then I realized they reminded me of colors from the desert colors from you know pottery that you find along the border. Um, they, they had that kind of cultural vibrancy and, and in the center of each square, I realized I was looking at some sort of a structure. And, and then I learned, um, from the curator that you had gone and photographed, uh, all of the test pieces of this new border wall, which I would just like to clarify is ironic to me and and such a colossal waste of uh, taxpayer money since we already have a border wall. And in some parts of uh, some regions along the border, there's actually already two walls. Um, just just feel like that's important to share. But it, it, it was so kind of arresting to me and and beautiful. And, and I, I turned uh, to the curator and I said, this is exactly my kind of activist art. And she said, well, then you have to meet Tony. Uh, and that's that's how this all began. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, um, I found it interesting that, you know, my, my work, that, that, that series is called uh, Paranoid Architecture. Mm-hmm. And it is eight representations of the Trump border wall prototypes. And um, because I did do some alteration with Photoshop and digital manipulation, um, but even though they were actual documents of the wall as t- the border walls as taken from the Mexican side of the border, um, they had a hard time including that in the show because technically it wasn't photography. I, I had altered it in order to up color contrast. And as you said, reference modernist formalism like Albers. And I think what was interesting to me is that in the show, there are a lot of these magnificent photographs, as you said, of, of these epic images of the walls in, in Israel and uh, uh, around the world and, and very much kind of a National Geographic feel. My work is more about kind of the psychic dimensions that the border has on me personally. We, we're so used to looking at border walls from the point of view 
of you know journalism and uh, the politics that's happening at the border or, or, or migrant issues or refugee issues that for me as as important as those are I, I feel that I absolutely have to tell my relationship to it in order to make my work uh, true you know if I can't say how I am and how I experience the border as a person and someone of, of partial Mexican descent lives in Los Angeles who, who's not an immediate migrant right who's not necessarily involved in political act, activism explicitly with the border um, how do I reconcile what that space is to someone like myself and you mentioned living here you you were born in California mm-hmm. did you grow up yeah, in Los I, Angeles I, yeah I'm born and raised in Los Angeles and uh, I've always I've always appreciated the fact that uh, you know I live about 300 miles from the border and that as I said I'm, I'm uh, partial Mexican ancestry but that part of me and very much part of being from Los Angeles and being surrounded by the culture of, of Mexico just by default you know LA is a Mexican city to a great extent and um, when I decided to start a, a broad new series it, it seemed like a natural fit to go back towards an autobiography that wasn't a kind of documentation, but was along the feel of what it means to be uh, someone who lives in Los Angeles, grew up in Los Angeles, and uh, focused on this aspect of my relationship to the border. I'm curious about that, about your your childhood, because I I love to focus on what people are doing with them, Mm -hmm. but I also really love to know how it all began. And I think we have such interesting perspective into why we do what we do now when we look back at how we grew up. So what, what was growing up in Los Angeles like? What were you aware of culturally? Are, were your parents very creative people? Um, my, my, my father is an attorney, but he is very, very much interested in music. And he was a very, very good amateur pianist. Um, but I grew up in the suburbs in Torrance, which is, uh, you know, inland a little bit from Redondo Beach. And it was incredibly boring. Everything <laughs> was the same. I just, I remember that any aspect of difference I could find was I just held on to it. So the fact that um, my dad, especially, we would listen to classical music, we would listen to jazz. Uh, my grandfather was a jazz musician. And I'll talk. I'm sure I'll, that'll come up in our talk. But um, uh, that and reading history as a kid. Mm. And for my dad was into Napoleon and the battles of the early 19th century, and I got hooked on that as well. So you have to imagine this kid who is really creative and very interested in the world, but who looked around and saw nothing. You know, I, I was little league. I did, I did all the stuff you're supposed to do, mm. but none of it captured my imagination at all. And mm. so reading, listening to music, making art, I was, I was always drawing, uh, whatever I could, whenever I could. And so I had to, I had to find my imaginative sources from outside of my immediate world. I had to, I had to hunt for them. And I think like, you know, any, any inquisitive child does, you know, we're just hungry for finding experiences that, 
that mean something to us. And to a great extent, I found them in books, music, and art, and not in uh, uh, cookie-cutter suburban buildings. <laughs> sure. What, what was the meaning you were finding? I mean, you reference your father's piano playing, your grandfather's jazz music. What, what imaginative doors was that type of creativity opening for you? I think more than anything, uh, because the present didn't seem very interesting, I needed something that had like, like, a, like a tether that I could hold on to from the past, mm. from some exterior source, something that felt um, more or less emotional, right? Uh, music is immediate. Um, it was funny, in my home, there was a kind of a taboo against pop music. It was unspoken. <laughs> my, my dad was was kind of a snob in that in that way but but for for good reason you know mm. so i listened to pop music on the slide but for the most part uh i guess the gravity of of uh classical music and the intensity of jazz i did really connect to and and i was looking for a way to, to a great extent to find an imaginative universe and the combination of finding histories outside of myself and personal, oddly. I mean, right? Why, why, how, how is it that we can relate to anything that we don't actually experience, uh, but we experience them secondhand, but they still have more meaning than things that, that seem to be immediately around us. I find that really fascinating and, and very much as well within my artistic practice. Well, and what an interesting thing to point out that, that we can truly be transported, you know, into these worlds through books, films, music, um, understand that we're learning lessons, that we're having cathartic experience with characters, that, that we are feeling the humanity of the people who are in these pages. And yet we kind of are dulled or desensitized to the humanity around us quite often to humanitarian issues, to crises when, you know, when, when we speak about the the issue at the border, which I know we'll get into more later. I'm I'm always so struck when I hear people say, "Well, they shouldn't have come here." I, I'm like, well, uh. let alone the fact that they, you know, Mexico was a territory mm. of the United States, and the first Californian Constitution was bilingual. Mm-hmm. They, they couldn't have come here. Is it's, it's on any level, it's it's insane. Well, and it misses, and you mentioned this earlier, the the natural motion or the natural order. You know, I think, I think about how, to your point, you know, you weren't wildly inspired by sort of cookie cutter buildings in suburbia. As a person who loves design, I understand that a building that is designed in a way that creates spatial flow can boost creativity and buildings that are badly designed make people feel kind of itchy when they're inside. You don't feel comfortable. You don't feel like you can breathe. And, and I think about the sort of design of these larger systems and how they interfere with motion and with interpersonal relationships and with even the migratory patterns of birds and animals. You know, there, there's a natural order to the way we move together that can often be interrupted and and then you see the effects, as you mentioned, with this border town that you love that was very multicultural and that had these two nations kind of 
in flow together. And, and then this wall went right through it and the whole place was disrupted for, for everyone, quote, on both sides. And so I, I think that'll, that'll be an interesting thing to unpack. I don't want to sidetrack us too much into the present because there are more questions I have about your past. Um, it's interesting, you know, talking about, I think, you know, this, this bigger issue of, of how, we, how we sort of disassociate ourselves from the immediate I think part of that is is that the culture has has really gone so corporate as to really not want to um, interact with you as a human being. The, the culture, the culture as we experience it, is really about a flow pattern of commerce, right? It's sort of positioning you in to various uh, creeks and rivers and tributaries so that you will get from point A to point B fairly seamlessly. Mm-hmm. And, and the natural inclination of intuition and being inspired and just being able to stop and take a look at something and think about it, like our culture doesn't really want you to do that. Our culture just wants you to get to a place where you can either consume or produce. And as a result, we're really, we're really sort of trained to be um, like to project effects rather than to reflect upon being alive, like literally being alive is not something that, that most of us spend a lot of time appreciating because we're too busy doing other things. I mean, I feel that way, you know, also as a teacher and as a parent, I'm always, it's really hard to just stop and just, just, you know, take a breath and just sort of say, Hey, I'm here with these people. And, I need to know that that there I don't have an agenda. My agenda is to be here. You know that's that's it, and to and to pick up traces of of meaning for, and uh, and experience from these people surrounding me. And uh, it's hard because we're on such a clock. Yeah, presence is tricky <laughs> and requires such practice. Do you do you think that art helps you? find that do you feel really present when you make art or when you when you look at art oh abs- absolutely i mean i don't know who i'd be without making art mm. um and it's every time i'm in the studio every time i'm thinking about what i'm doing and making something it's a reset but it's like you're going back to the i don't know but i i know i need to know the moment of the complete hunger. And it isn't like being in the studio is not like, uh, it's not like an epiphany all the time. You know, it's not like you're, you're seeing fireworks and you're excited about what you're going to do, but there is this kind of amazing, uh, really fulfilling vacuum where you're allowed time to stop and to have, to be kind of unfiltered right? To not, to let, let the ego kind of subside and to let all the other um, penetrating thoughts inside and allow that to manifest themselves through action. I mean, I, I keep telling my students that um, you're not there to make anything, right? You're not there to make art. You don't, you don't make art. You, you, let, you let the current flow through you and it, it, at some point, it starts to make itself if you're intuitive enough to pay attention. If you can see 
that you controlling something makes dead things. And once you see that not controlling things make living things, then the art that you make is honest, it's uh, and, and meaningful, and that's how I feel in the studio. I'm always constantly trying to push out anything that says, here's what you need to do, and to allow for here's what you might consider. Mm. That's really beautiful. I'm struck thinking about your finding a pathway to art as a child and and now in in the present, you teaching art. You know, it's it's such a it's such a cool thing. Who who was your first art teacher or or were you in your childhood more experiencing art from the position of observing it? You know, were you going to museums? What What's your kind of earliest memory of understanding that art could be something that you could interact with or make? Well, it's funny. I mean, the, the most profound moment I have is when I was about 11 hmm. and my parents took me to uh, France and we went to the Louvre. Hmm. And, you know, I had been a big movie buff. I'd been a big fan even as a kid. Uh, I remember going to the Cinerama Dome and seeing amazing art experiences. And I remember seeing like Kubrick films on big screen. I mean, I remember seeing movies as art, but when we went to the Louvre, I, I saw that painting was a, especially on that level, especially like academic painting in the 1800s uh, was, was like watching a frozen movie that it was like watching, like, you know how when you're in it, you're watching a really great movie and you just wish it would stop just so that you could just, you know, you, you don't want it to rush, but you don't have any choice because it's time-based and music is similar like that. But painting is, is such a weird theater. It's such a theater of silence and openness. And I remember thinking, this is what I want to do. So even though I kept working, you know, I was making films in high school and I was, I actually started at UCLA wanting to be uh, a, a filmmaker, I kept going back to that moment when a single image, a flat image on canvas could do essentially the same thing that I got out of film. And later on in, in college, I realized that's when I need to make a shift. So I think it's funny that, you know, some of my favorite movies are like Lawrence of Arabia <laughs> and uh, other epic films. And here I am, in this other desert, making work about this epic political issue, uh, historical issue. And the history painting that I saw in the Louvre, especially artists like uh, Delacroix and Jericho, they, they made me just, it just opened my eyes to the possibility of doing something epic that's also silent, that's also frozen. Uh, and you let the viewer, uh, you know, move through this thing and, and let them be, uh, let them be occupied forever endlessly. And that's what I also love about paintings is that you can, you can continue to go back to them and the good ones are always new. It's the oddest phenomenon that I know of. And it's true of film, but you sort of expect that because of the time 
But the idea of a fixed object renewing your 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 sense of being on a continual basis is such a it's such a, a kind of wild idea. And uh, so yes, going to museums. Uh, luckily, my parents were were very very much appreciative of my art. Um, so that was huge to me in, in Los Angeles. And Los Angeles, luckily, had a great had several great collections, great museums. Uh, the Norton Simon, LACMA, then later on MoCA, now the Broad. I mean, that's something that my I'm, we're always uh, getting our kids to be exposed to. Because even though they hate being dragged to museum openings and gallery openings and all of that, I know that at some point it's radically opening up their world to things other than you know. Netflix or whatever. I love that. And it's true. I, I, I do find that in the midst of this, you know, shelter at home quarantine we're all experiencing together, one of the things I miss most is museums. Yes. I'm just, I'm, my heart aches when I think about them. And yeah. I'm excited for the day when we get to go back into into that space when when you think about the the impact of those places you know on you as a child and and you mentioned earlier that you were always drawing did you begin making art by drawing was that your first kind of endeavor and and what were you what were you drawing yeah uh you know it's funny i, I mentioned national geographics mm-hmm. <laughs> there was something really transporting about copying different things from National Geographic magazines. Um, you know, people that seemed incredibly exotic to me in my mm. suburban, my suburban mini temple. And I, I, you know, the landscapes, all of that seemed as if somehow I was trying to apprehend the world mm. in, a, in a, in a real modest and maybe dumb way. But, uh, it felt like it was an opening up, you know, it was an opening up to question where I was and uh, how big the world was mm-hmm. and how much I needed to be out in it. So, you know, it could be skylines of cities that I'd never visited or, you know, uh, native peoples in the Amazon or, or deserts in the Southwest. I, w- I would just copy these things. And I think they were, it was just a way of digesting them as best I could without being there. And, and were there artists, you know, you speak about these classical historical painters you became aware of at, at the Louvre when you went to France. Were there artists that you were trying to emulate as a kid? Yeah, well, that's interesting because um, the other thing I did a lot of was I copied movie posters mm. from the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. <laughs> which is, I think back on that and think, God, what a weird kid I must have been. I'm going into, these, into the library and I'm checking out books on graphic art and design and movie posters. And I would take them home and I would make my own mini movie posters. And also like, like you know, w- war posters and, and, and things that had these kind of, you know, epic reaches out and advertising for big stories, right? Mm. Um, Posters from World War One, you know, about buying bonds and, you know, posters of Humphrey Bogart, mm-hmm. African Queen. Like, I, I forget, like, how much time I spent with an open book with graphic art 
and trying to copy this stuff. <laughs> and, you know, I can't imagine being, uh, well, actually I can't because my, my daughter and, and now my son are really drawing quite a bit. But how odd it must have been for my parents to look over my shoulder and see this open book of, you know, movie posters from, from movies before I was born and me drawing them. Mm. I mean, they must have thought, what a strange child. But the fact that nobody interferes with you, yeah. right? The fact that you have parents that are generous enough to say, to not say, well, you should be playing outside. Mm. You know, I never heard that. I was like, they just sort of let me be. Yeah. And I think, you know, as a parent, I have to fight that preoccupation to interject my my own ideas into my kids. Mm. I, don't, I don't need my kids to be artists. I don't need to be involved in the art world. But I do want them to appreciate experiences and then they can do what they want with them. Sure. I, I, I imagine that's such a struggle. I think about it, you know, I said to my mom, I said, God, I just wish you'd made me take piano lessons. Mm-hmm. Because I love music. And she was like, but you didn't want to, (laughs) you know? And so there's this, there's this really interesting thing where I think about some of the hobbies that I had as a kid and, and how lucky I was that my parents let me pursue them. And then I also wish that, you know, they had, they had kind of forced me to do some things I could have held on to, um, in my adult life. And I don't know how as a parent you're meant to solve for that. It must be quite a conundrum to know to your point, where to interject and where not to. So you know, you never had any like musical leanings or. I've always really, I've always really loved music. Um, But I think the thing that probably threw me from becoming more musical, um, the school that I was in as a really young kid didn't have a music program. And then when I got into a school that did, uh, my option was to join the orchestra and, I was assigned to play the flute and like, I just don't care about the flute. I think it's beautiful. Don't get me wrong. But for me, it it wasn't a thing I wanted to stick with. And I think in my little, you know, childhood brain that wasn't developed to make the connections I can make now, I went, I don't want to do this. It wasn't, maybe I should try another instrument, you know? (laughs) And it's so easy to make, horrible sounds when you start playing the flute. Oh my God. Just, the, minute, the minute you try, you're like, oh my, I can't do it. Like this is- No, it's terrible. Hurt. You feel like you're hurting the world. Yeah. And for start. me, it was just gross. I was like, there's a spit trap. This is disgusting. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to do this. Um, but now as an adult, I'm, I'm beginning to figure out how to learn to play the piano. And it's the oh, thing great. that I realized, you know, if I- if I love it, I should lean into it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I did play quite a lot of piano growing up. Oh, cool. uh, it's interesting. I, you know, I was pretty much forced to play piano uh, and I played it through being a teenager and then I stopped because it didn't feel right. But I picked it up later in my late twenties, early thirties. And I got pretty good for a while. Cool. And, uh, it, it is, there's something, it was really, I was really appreciative of the fact that I had a, enough of a base line of knowledge so that later on when I wanted to play some things that were more sophisticated, I didn't, I wasn't afraid. Hmm. So I think as long as you're a kid and you have a kind of familiarity, it just breeds a kind of trust. And then you can 
uh, turn that into a kind of confidence, you know? Uh, but if you, if you, if you've had these bad experiences or not non experiences with, with some of these things, I, I think that, you know, you don't, you don't follow through later. Like, it's great that you're open enough to do this because I'm sure you've been inspired by friends, you people, you know, musicians, you know, and musicians you don't know. And, and, and you, you have a connection that's not just as a consumer, you have a connection as a peer on some level, however modest, and you want to participate in that, right? Mm. So I wonder then how, when we think about how we participate and what we pursue, when did the switch flip for you where you realized that art was something you could do as a career, that that it wasn't just a hobby, you didn't just want to draw and trace right. and and, you know, recreate posters and paintings that, that you wanted to make art as your job. When did I know that? Oh, I, or, I would, or realize it was possible. Yeah. Well, it's, it's still difficult. You yeah. know, I mean, being an artist is never easy. Um, but I would have to say that, um, you know, when I made the commitment to go to grad school in San Francisco and major in painting, then then you're kind of, you're all in, right? It's one thing to get a degree in college with a bachelor's of fine arts and you've been painting. It's another thing to go to grad school because you're, you're quite responsible for not only history of your craft, uh, but also theory of your craft and, and, um, you you sort of position yourself within within the, the legacy of it and the weight of it, and also the the opportunities of the future that it might provide. And um, you know, grad school in painting is a hilarious place to be. Wait, why? <laughs> That's not what I expected you to say. As far as well, feedback about I, getting a master's <laughs> of fine art. <laughs> Well, it's hilarious in the sense that, you know, you're really, and I don't think people, well, I think people, you know, find it ludicrous on some levels, but you kind of are a quantum physicist in aesthetics, you know, you're, you're pushing the boundaries of what is, is, and, uh, I mean, just the other night, uh, somebody asked me, well, can you tell me what art is? <laughs> and I was like, and this was at the end of a, of a, of a dinner conversation. And I, was, and I said, seriously, you're going to ask me that now? Like we're at the end of dinner. <laughs> like this is not, there's no takeaway from that, from that question. You don't just sort of say, yes. Uh, oh, here's what art is. Check, please. You know, it doesn't work like that. So, you know, it's, it's, and, and in art school, it's, 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 you know, years of reading and theory and, and critiques and, and, you know, criticism that hurts and criticism that you really respect and you sort of bashed around as a person um, while you're still trying to make alliances and you're, you're trying to, yeah, you, you, in the middle of grad school, you do figure, you do question yourself like, wow, is this really what I want to do? Right. But at the end of the day, when you're alone in your studio or with your, with friends and you're talking about work and it just, it washes over you that of course this is what I should be doing. There is nothing else. Like everything else is, it seems thin, which is funny because to everyone else, art seems really thin. Mm. 
to everyone else, art seems like the last thing you do at the end of the day. You do it when it's 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 when you when you when you have time, you write a poem. When you have time, you play some music. When you have, you know, it's like it's never the first thing you should do. And once you realize that without it, there is nothing else, right? Then that's when you realize uh, you're in the right place. And grad school, to a great extent, is about um, separating uh, separating what you should be doing from what you think you should be doing. Like, it's really about centering yourself. That really strikes me as interesting. Separating what you're doing from what you think you should be doing. Mm-hmm. So... What were some of the lessons that you learned there? What are some of those light bulbs about where you invest your time? Yeah. Um, well, it's f- interesting. I I did know I did know early on that I was very interested in different types of materials and different types of of things to work with. So even as even as even as painting matters to me very, very much. Um, I was playing around with different types of materials, but also the image really, once I realized how important images are mm. and how much they stick with you, I image and memory are very, very, very connected, mm. right? When you think of your childhood, there's probably a few images, you know, immediately spring to mind, like very specific images. And we craft our identities and narratives around those images. And it's so funny about all the things we forget or all the things we, uh, we choose to forget. Um, so that what memory does and image memory is really create this alternative being from the being that's living, right? What, what's interesting about art is that you're, you're, you're making images and creating or working with images that are a combination of how you literally picture the world by choice and then how you exist in the world by chance. Mm. That was, that was a very important thing I got out of grad school that I was dealing with uh, certain types of personal histories, images from those histories, but also images from things that had meaning and then how they felt within the presence of the studio. Because I, I realize we're speaking about it, and and I'm sure there's some people listening who love the idea of theory, purpose, you know, what activates us, how, how deep art is. But we touched on you getting your MFA, your Master's of Fine Art in grad school. What does that really mean? What is What is the process of a master's? Because... I would wager that there are some students wondering if it's for them and perhaps you can shed a little bit of light on what goes into the pursuit of an education around that depth of art and what art has actually meant to society and and the way that I I would I would posit society could not have developed without art so what what is it to study that in that way? Well, that's a those are that's a that's a great question. It's very, 
big. Uh, I'll try. I'll try and do my best. Um, <laughs> Just you know, there's a casual thing for you on a Tuesday morning. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, well, I, I would say first of all that if you if you don't live and die art, and I don't mean by like the big picture, but like you making it. Don't don't go to high school. Like it's just you have to you have to think of your you have to understand yourself as someone who who it's like oxygen or blood. Like it's just it's just there. Um, for for anyone approaching the idea, you know, a, a master's of fine art. It's it depends on which school you go to, right? Some schools are very theory laden. Some are very craft laden. So you really have to do your homework about where you want to be. I chose San Francisco because it had a it had a legacy of of sort of a particular West Coast avant garde, hmm. and especially what does that really mean? What what is like well, a, what does a West Coast avant garde mean to to a lay person? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, well, I'll, you know, I'll use my grandfather's example before I get into art, but basically, uh, like historically, there's been a West Coast East Coast jazz. I mean, it's also true of rap. Right? Like, you take a common medium. But there's a flavor on the East Coast and there's a flavor on the West Coast. In jazz, uh, uh, everyone was on the beat, you know, bump, 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 you know, everyone's like, everyone's really intense, like really on it. But in the West Coast, it was laid back and everyone, it was sort of post beat. So, and it was kind of like slightly behind and that sort of flattened out the sound in a way which kind of got more of a groove that wasn't caffeinated. You know, uh, like I listen to, you know, you know, bebop from the fifties. It's like, holy shit. Like these guys are like incredibly tight and on task. Painting in the, in the West coast, um, uh, kind of was non or less intellectual, intellectual in a way it was, it was kind of in the same vein it was much more, uh, much more physical and not embarrassed that the physicality of it wasn't tied to an intellectual aspect. Like there was a sort of relationship between the body, not as an abstract uh, maker of work, but the body is kind of a person, like an individual character who uh, in a very kind of simple way painted what they felt, painted what they saw. And there was also a huge history, especially in the Bay Area, of relationship to Eastern art, which completely changed the trajectory of art history that uh references to uh buddhism and uh japanese printmaking uh heavily influenced artists on the west coast in los angeles and california i'm sorry in san francisco that that allowed the work to be i think a little more kind what do you mean by that? <laughs> um, well, uh, a lot of art, especially abstract art from the post-war period, tended to be very intense and sort of grabs you by the the uh, the collar and says, "You need to see me. You need to see this, right? You need to see me. You need to deal with me." West Coast art <clears throat> didn't didn't have that same affect. It, 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 it said, you know, you can take me, you can leave me uh, to a great extent, 
as long as you experience me and take me at face value, I'm happy. And, and there's also more humor in West Coast art. Uh, you know, one of our greatest artists is Ed Ruscha, who a lot of your listeners are familiar with, Jalan Baldessari, an amazing, amazing artist and teacher at UCLA who just passed. Uh, these are artists that, that always had a twinkle in their eye. You know, always was like, you know what, this is a, I'm, I'm going to give you a, a big insight, but it's kind of like a koan. It's like a, it's like a little bit of a, a riddle. And I'm going to do it in a way which you're going to walk away saying, huh, rather than wow. <laughs> so um, when I chose San Francisco, uh, and also the East Coast has always seemed very foreign to me because I was born and raised in LA, that I, I just felt, it felt like a better fit for me. Um, ironically, when I went to San Francisco, a lot of the, some of the teachers thought my work was too cool and too L.A. because they were a lot more gestural and sort of emotive and I was kind of playing with a sort of a cooler vibe and they said like oh yeah your your work looks like it's from LA so LA still has this this attitude in in, uh, the art world of being kind of a very different special place where just come on come on here and make the work you want to make and we won't ask anything of you. It doesn't need to look a certain way. It just needs to, it needs to be authentic. And then we'll, we'll fit it in with everything else that's happening in the city. And, and that's why I've never felt compelled to leave. I've always felt that it's always a new city. It doesn't ask me to be anyone in particular. It doesn't have that, that headbutting that you find in, in you know, New York. It's a place where, like I was saying earlier, you really can just sort of stop and just look around you. I noticed that behind you, you have a photograph from Joshua Tree, and that's exactly what I'm talking about. Can you imagine that photograph in New York, right? In a New York, in New York person's house? It doesn't. I don't even occur to them. You know, those Joshua trees are the oldest trees. I think living things, or they're close to the oldest living things on the planet Earth, and they're 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 very alien. They're strange. They're interesting by silhouette, right? They're not the forests of the East coast. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a flat horizon of desert and these amazingly weird things pop up in the middle of it. And I think that's a really good example of the people in LA too, right? We're sort of all stuck on this plane. We're all very interesting in the way we are. And, and, um, with a lot of space. I mean, we have a lot of space here. So all that stuff affected my work and still does. As you were developing your style and, you know, getting your masters and really diving so deep into, as you mentioned, the, the history and the craft of art, did you find a mentor or mentors? Hmm. I ask because people have asked me that you know, who was your mentor? And I never had one <laughs> and I wish that I had. And, and so, uh, I'm, I'm curious now about yeah. if, if artists who I admire have or had mentors. Yeah. It's funny. I never had the kind of, uh, hand on your shoulder mentor, mm-hmm. uh, but I had some people that influenced me quite a bit. And one of them was in undergrad, uh, it's an artist named Marvin Harden. Um, uh, uh, really terrific LA uh, artist. And what was amazing about him was that 
every day he would show up to class in the exact same outfit, which was blue jeans and a jeans jacket. And he's a very handsome man. Uh, uh, and he wore, he wore these heavily tinted purple glasses. And he was a painting teacher. And he would look at a painting of mine and talk about color. And I, I always thought, how the hell do you, like, how can you see that this shade of yellow is the wrong yellow or is too antagonistic or whatever? And with these glasses on, and he would make, he, would, he was very good colorist, but he never, I never saw him not wearing these glasses. What I learned from him and his, his language, he made very, very, very subtle again, sort of getting back to maybe a part of it, uh, sort of a Zen mindset. Um, he didn't speak a lot. He was very quiet. Uh, I knew he's a, he was a fond of, of horseback riding. And anyway, he would make these little tiny drawings that were maybe six inches tall and one inch wide. A pencil. At least little tiny hatch marks. And often in the very bottom, there would be a tiny little animal, like a horse. They were just the weirdest little drawings. And, and the thing I walked away from them, you know, here's this kid who was so impressed with these giant, epic French paintings in the Louvre. I didn't feel any different when I looked at those little drawings he made. And, and his sort of approach of subtlety and generosity, he was harsh. Um, but he's always honest. And, uh, at the time I didn't think of him as a mentor at all. There were, there were other teachers that I enjoyed more and the same is true as grad school. Um, but I'll, I'll just never forget the kind of aura he had that just sort of generated kindness, uh, methodical looking, uh, and a real appreciation to, he was always talking about every single square inch of your work needs to matter. Do not, do not think that the things on the edges are less consequential than the things in the center, ever. And I learned that that is the most important thing in making art. There's no such thing as a periphery. It's a, it's a, a total plane of experience. Because, and getting back to this idea of the silent object operating on you so magnificently, if you look at a, at a, at a fantastic painting, like the girl with the pearl earring, right? Which is in The Hague. Um, I was fortunate enough to see that in person. There is no moment in that painting, including the vast dark area around around uh, the portrait of the woman, every part of it feels so intense and so meaningful that uh, what I got from, from Marvin was this, this, this knowledge that, like it's super knowledge, right? The, the scale really doesn't matter, A. Scale doesn't matter. Point of reference doesn't matter. Everything matters. When you care, everything matters. I'm so struck by what that lesson meant to you for your work. The idea that there is no such thing as a periphery, this notion of one plane. When you care, everything matters. 
all of that feels inherently equally relatable to how we look at society. Absolutely. There is no such thing as a periphery, the way we've been cultured to kind of look at what's in front of us and and push what we don't like out to the sides. You know, we become desensitized to the crisis of refugees or to gun violence, but we really live on one plane of existence. Every single person is in a way the central figure in their own painting or their own photograph. And, and if we could remember when we look at people that they are as important to someone as our spouse or child or parent or sister is to us, mm-hmm. you know, what, what would that, how would that change the way we relate to each other? And, and this notion, you know, that when you care, everything matters. I think that's the sort of root feeling of so many activists of, of why so many of us in various ways do what we do. And it all leads me to wonder how early in your career did you start to, because you were making those types of observations, how early did you start making interpretations of historical and political works? Uh, well, I think, I think it was always there. Mm. I mean, we talk about childhood, right? And how, you know, I mean, even listening to classical music as a youth, without the intention of being a classical musician, learning about history, uh, it put me in a trajectory where I was always thinking about, you know, not not my reference within my my own years, but my reference as, as the end tale of many, many, many years prior. That I, that I, that I was really part of a, a legacy of being that, you know, had an infinite uh, starting point. And so I've always been interested in finding places that are not immediately next to me, but places that were a hundred years ago or 200 years ago. I've read so much amazing, you know, when I'm, when I'm making work, I'm, I'm always referencing all sorts of types of histories. Uh, I remember reading a book once about how, people in the uh, medieval Europe saw nature and how that started to change around the 17th century, that the nature itself was seen as a sacred space. We think of, we think of Western history as being, you know, the culprit behind climate change. And it, it certainly recent history is right. Recent meaning in the last couple centuries. But before that, there was a time it was, it was sick. Like that things like mining for, for metal, was thought of as being uh, a, a sort of rape of the earth. That there was an actual European mindset when mining and uh, uh, you know taking things out through greed was an actual horrific interference with with the natural forces. That that we, we should we should generously accept what it has, not take from it. Yes, and that. I remember thinking, well, this is not my understanding of history. This is, you know, so reading these alternate histories about, you know, when you think about a certain thing, usually there's a history at some point that contradicts what you normally think about it, right? There's always, if you dig deep enough, you'll realize that the stories that you take for granted are wrong. Mm. And I, w- I would say to a great extent that, that the, my work about the border is, is part of that idea that, 
you know, I had, I had thought about the border as a place of, you know, in, a, in a very particular way, based on how I was taught, based on my knowledge of history and politics and even my own, you know, my own personal history. In order to get to know it, I had to just sort of find new ways of shaking off the dust of all of that poor sediment of knowledge. I think most of us are coded with poor information, right? Wow. And the, the best information, you have to look for it yourself. It's there, the true stuff, the stuff that really is mature. Right, it's not predigested from some other source like a ba- you know mama bird to a baby bird. Uh, the best stuff for all of us, you have to find and eat your, yourself. You have to you have to, you have to make it. So the border project, it's titled Border Theory, really is about that. It's about me digesting this this thing that's had consequences for my own uh, life, but also um, it's something that I find relevant to how we should all pick apart things that we uh, otherwise hold as a bias, hmm. stereotype. Hmm. I wish I could do it with everything. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the examination of self, of belief, of society feels so incredibly important. And, and I'm also, I guess because of the time that we live in, so worried about how people go to search because there are these crazy disinformation campaigns and conspiracy theories. And, you know, I, God, I just got a message the other day. I I had interviewed a, a scientist to talk about, you know, what, what all of this COVID business means and how we're going to get to the other side of it and what does it really look like to find a vaccine? And I got a message from someone saying, well, you know that all the vaccine companies are owned by Bill Gates and he's going to make billions and they probably let this virus out. And I was like, where are you getting your information? What is happening? You know, and I, I worry for us that now when we try to go and learn more, there is the risk of being yanked into these. Oh, I, I see it almost like there's these Venus flytraps that have been set that are trying to yank people into uh, into these rabbit holes that'll make us distrust each other more. That that are that are filled with this dangerous sort of nationalistic, uh, tribalistic mess. And and tribalism really has only ever served to denigrate humanity and also to cause a lot of pain and a lot of death and a lot of loss. And, and it's always in the places where we get in better flow with each other, where we create better systems, where we can live together, where we have more access, where, where we look out for each other. Those are always the places where humanity gets better. And so my God, I, I hope that as we talk about ways to shake off the sediment, people listening and just people out there will also be really careful and cognizant of, you know, where they're seeking information and, and do so with, you know, respected and trusted sources because it's hairy out there. The really, it's a, there's a problem. There's a trust issue that's really has happened to a great extent is that um, everyone Everyone is desperate for trust. Everyone is desperate to, to say, yes, yes, I 
you and I are together, right? But but everyone, there's so many uh, agents that are doing that for the absolute wrong reasons. They're just to create numbers, right? To create to create numerical data allies and or votes and. Uh, Trust has to be, yeah, trust has to be earned on, on so many levels. And yet the methods for acquiring trust have become so flimsy and easy now that I, I know people that I really respect. And then they'll say something like, oh, well, you ever thought about this because blah, blah, blah. It's just what you're talking about. And I'm like, whoa, I didn't think you had that in you. <laughs> I didn't think, I didn't think you were like that you know, conspiracies or whatever it is. And uh, it's almost as if you, if you don't have an answer for something, people won't trust you. Like if you don't have opinion about something, people won't trust you. And, and, you know, what about honoring people who, who take the time to consolidate lots of different options and make up their mind and who are just, you know, like I said, methodical. Why, why, and the reason is, of course, it's because of the way we frame time and what we're supposed to do. Like you're supposed to make all your decisions quickly. And that the analog time has, for, for all intents and purposes, been completely leveled, right? Analog time is kind of a part of human history, at least modern history, that seems to have disappeared. Ironically, you have to go out of your way to get back into that kind of time, which, and, and to a great extent, it's a luxury, right? A lot of mm-hmm. people escape to get that analog time back, that, that those moments where you, you slow down enough so that you can trust on a humane level and not just a political or you know, ego-centric level. So when we think about the current landscape, you know, trust, information, disinformation, what's what's happening to people, this, this sort of false illusion of a periphery. I, I think about your work at the border, but before, before I launch us into th- this newer project, I, I feel like it would be remiss to not discuss your Moby Dick series. Um, because again, on, on your interpretations of the historical, political, and literary, Moby Dick feels like a big one to touch on. And I, I would just, love for you to walk us through that a bit where the idea came from you know what what the project is about how it's framed oh yeah um uh well i i I had never read the book i know that it's it's one of those things that that you know people really push push away or they read in high school for some horrible english teacher who thought it was gift from god but they didn't (laughs) they couldn't get into it but I read it uh, only, you know, fairly recently, and and um, I I couldn't believe how prescient it was. I couldn't believe that it felt like contemporary America on multiple levels. Uh, the 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 biggest part, because I could go on forever about about the, the novel, was that it seemed to say that America, um, America's founding myth was antagonistic that there was always an other it was either there was an other that we need that that we could only identify ourselves around 
uh, the notion in, in opposition to the other. So this idea of an expansive utopian uh, 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 co a continent that was quote unquote discovered, right? Well, of course it wasn't discovered. And of course that uh, it wasn't theirs for the taking, right? It was not, it was not, it was not for America. America was not preordained, but America likes to think of itself as being preordained because it, it, it pushes itself into a future of necessity rather than a future of condition. So like, you know, if you grow up in, all, in any other country in the world, it's a really, it's a mess, right? It's a mess of histories. But America's central identity has always been the push towards, uh, 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 you, know, you know, the frontier spirit, right? Like the myth, the central myth of America is the rugged individual uh, finding their own place within a hostile environment. And Moby Dick is the story of a, a incredibly brilliant but very deranged captain who's willing to sail over the entire globe in order to hunt down this one whale that bit off his leg. <laughs> so the center of the story is this crazy story about madness and paranoia and all sorts of stuff. And, and, and when I read the book, it was during the, uh, it was in 2006 during the uh, Iraq war. And literally as I'm reading this book, uh, Fallujah's taking place. The battle of Fallujah was one of the most, you know, devastating operations for the uh, Marines. And I'm thinking about Saddam Hussein as the whale and President Bush as um, Captain Ahab. And this had already been spoken about, um, uh, that, that, you know, Osama bin Laden is the whale, right? Like, like we've always had these, and a coronavirus, right? Like, I feel like even Trump's relationship to uh, the, I think he calls it the great unseen enemy, right? Or, the, or worse, the Chinese virus, right? He has to posit it in a sense that it's, it's not natural. Like the coronavirus is an extension of nature as much as the leaves outside of my window. Like just, it is an enemy because it's, 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 it's an existential threat, right? But to couch it in political terms, let alone racial terms, is absolutely batshit crazy. And that's certainly, yeah, that's what Ahab was all about, was like, like projecting all of his inabilities to find peace within himself onto this thing that he would, he would literally take down his ship and all its crew in order for him to think, get salvation from that confrontation. Mm. God, it does feel oddly related, doesn't it? Because when I, when I look at the incredibly unfortunate circumstance of, of us being supposedly led uh, by a quote leader, but, who exhibits nothing but a repeated de dereliction of duty, this desire to make foreign mm -hmm. a, a virus, this desire to, uh, you know, when a, when a reporter asks why we are not testing, we need to be testing. The lack of testing and the lack of contact tracing is making the United States fall victim to this virus in a way that no other country has. We have the largest numbers in the world. It's 
incredibly scary. And and he his response is, ask China. <laughs> it's like, what does that even mean? And, you know, the again, the conspiracy theories that have come out, people saying, well, you know, the lab in Wuhan, I, I want to be like, hey, guys, you know, there were 11, there's 11 labs around the world studying coronaviruses, and we study them as a team. You know, we... We fund these governments in every country to have their best researchers studying the kinds of zoonotic viruses that make people sick, like, you know, so that we don't have another plague. Viruses like SARS, things that are incredibly dangerous to all of humanity. And and he has this weird thing, it seems to me as an observer, where if he can make it someone else's fault— he doesn't have to take responsibility for not leading. You know, it's it's almost like a parent whose kid falls down and breaks their arm because they weren't looking. And they say, well, the, this other parent was distracting me. And it's like, what does that even mean? Take your kid to the hospital. Exactly. Why are we having this conversation? It's completely irrelevant. It's completely irrelevant. And yet it's, it's stunning that in his mind, uh, it's the most important thing. As that that it's that this has nothing to do with me. I mean, to a certain extent, that's what he's saying, right? He, he's saying this has nothing to do with me. Well, and saying and, it from a place where he and everyone else in the White House get tested every day. Yeah, where totally. we've we've now learned that everyone in the White House is required to wear a mask uh, in in the in in the White House on property. And around him, but he won't wear a mask because he doesn't want to be seen doing so because, again, he thinks that makes him look weak or something, whereas it's just what scientists are asking us to do. And, and you know, you see these poor these poor team members, you know, I, I just feel for Dr. Fauci so much right now. You know, his trying to stay in good enough graces that he can remain in his position so that he can advise Americans, but also having to constantly clean up, you know, this mess. It just, it's so strange. And it, it does. I, I hadn't thought about the parallel uh, to this current experience that we're all in together and, and the kind of experience of the crew on Moby Dick's ship. But I am certainly thinking about it now. Well, it's it's a it's a it's a constant in American. I mean, the, you know, the history of racism in the United States. Uh, you know, whether it's the U.S.-Mexican border or the Chinese Exclusion Act, or the internment of Japanese Americans in Manzanar and other camps. Um, speaking of which, the very first border fence was made. Uh, the like the, the the first official border fence was made with the materials taken down after World War II from a Japanese-American internment camp. Mm. <laughs> I want you to think about that for a minute. The, the, the very material of the border wall separating the United States and Mexico came from a Japanese-American camp that was used to enclose American citizens. And then a later iteration was metal sheets that were left over from the Vietnam War. So the, the actual, even the materiality of the fence is ingrained, an ingrained uh, history of xenophobia and fear. And um, it's, it's, it's a consistent within American history. I mean, 
it's, you know, it's not all of American history, but you don't have to dig very deep to find it. And, and you don't have to dig very deep to relate it to the comments that the president made. It's all part and parcel of a kind of an underlying panic that somehow America is always under threat. Well, and that somehow we have to always be afraid of the other. When mm-hmm. what does that even mean? Right. This, this, well, I, this idea of otherism is so strange to me. As a human yeah. species, it's so strange to me. It, it's it is it is it is we're hardwired for it on some level, but but and it is it is I mean that's that's why all of this this uh, misinformation works right it just immediately plugs into our our sensibilities that uh, we're under attack I mean I, I keep on going back to like some some in all of us there's the we're afraid of the big bear coming into the interest of the cave like I think like human beings there's it, it just depends on where that pressure point is, but at some point we just panic. We lose all sense of of uh, rational thought and empathy and compassion, and we just we just seek sh- some kind of shelter or protection, and we don't care what the consequences are. And that's just a that's a horrible position to still have in the in the contemporary world when we have such access to raw power in terms of you know, uh, internet data and nuclear weapons and, uh, you know, uh, all sorts of commodities and the way we farm. Like, we have so much power. And, and it, it, the flip of a switch, if it's motivated by panic and fear, mm. we're screwed because mm. it affects everybody. And again, that goes back to your observation. There's just no such thing as a periphery. Mm-hmm. So it's funny because in in going from that series into your your present project, you know, talking about the work at the U.S.-Mexico border and how you've incorporated it into your art, it, it feels silly because I I feel like we're already in it. We're already talking about it. It's it's always been there in a way. And you know, you mentioned being acutely aware of the reality and the duality, even as a child. When. When did you decide to take all of that experience, those observations, and actually begin creating these specific projects that yeah. comment on the border? Um, you know, to to a great extent, I was when I got preoccupied with satellite, you know, um, Google Earth, I started looking at the way. I mean, Google Earth is Google Earth is fascinating because you can see the the, the Earth both you know, without international boundaries, without cities, without any kind of documentation. And it looks one way. And then you overlay all that stuff. And then you just see how all of this line drawing and all of this, you know, to great extent, compositional formatting creates a bigger reality than the earth as its, as its own thing, right? It used to be where Boundaries were all natural, right? Well, there's those mountains behind us, and you, go, you know we live in this valley, and that river is where the next people live, start, right? And there's always been intertribal conflict, but it's always been through natural boundaries and a kind of an understanding of place as a real place. Well, what what I started being fascinated by was with satellite photography. You could just see how completely abstract and um, absurd a lot of these boundaries are. 
and uh, you know, in this straight line, which is half of the Mexican U.S.-Mexico border, which was drawn with a pencil, uh, or the Middle East, right? The entire Middle East was pretty much drawn into existence around 19, 1918, 1919. And you know, look at a, look at the conflicts that happened. You have you know, to some to great extent, nomadic peoples uh, who were moving across borders, moving across uh, or just spaces. Now all of a sudden, they're moving across borders. Uh, so that, that, when I started looking at that, those, uh, satellite maps, it started, uh, me thinking in terms of art and in terms of with, within, within the history of abstract painting, there's been always this idea that it was sort of utopian and sort of post-nationalistic, meaning that abstraction was a language and you were mentioning Albers has been a big influence on my work out at the, at the core of Albers idea uh, is this idea that, that shapes and color can speak for themselves and that they don't have an agenda. They don't have a national agenda. They don't have a, you know, everyone sees a shape, everyone sees a color, and they all see it equally. What, what, what I started to think about was how you could take that, those same types of forms and uh, digressions and, and they could be kind of sinister. Right, a line. When is when are you, when do you when do you ever fear a line? Well, when you cross a border, right? The minute any one of us crosses a border, we somehow feel differently. I always find that fascinating. I remember once being in Ecuador, and you know, there's a little place. It's kind of like Four Corners, right, where you can put one foot in Northern Hemisphere, and when you, oh, I'm standing in the middle of the earth, and. and <laughs> It's such a bizarre thing, and it's completely untrue because it's like you're, you know, there's no middle of the earth, right? It's a globe, it's a sphere. So how can there be a middle? But we think of it in those terms because of the poles. And again, it's an opposition. Bipolar opposition creates the hemispheres. The hemispheres create a hemisphere line, and the line creates difference. So when all of those things started to move into how I think about abstract painting, and the more I began to think like with Trump's prototypes, they're, they're 30 by 30 foot squares, right? They're purely almost platonic forms. And the square used in art has always been kind of liberating, right? It's a way of thinking about, you know, a modular unit that's sort of mathematical, like math is thought of as being pure. Mm-hmm. And when I started seeing those squares on those prototypes, they seemed very much a part of a utopian ideal of, of geometry, but in practice were very sinister. Mm. And that's so the, the whole border theory project has been about sort of relate relating the abstract with the, with the uh, political to a great extent and, and where those things interact. How personal does that feel for you? Well, it, 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 it's, it is definitely, it's, it's uh, it's an intellectual exercise to a great extent. It's an art. It's an aesthetic exercise. But um, the reason I started focusing on going to the border and moving away from satellite imagery is that all of a sudden it felt it felt it felt a little fake, right? It felt a little like too removed. Here I am in my studio making fo- taking photographs from a satellite, and I'm making these paintings. Uh, based on it, that felt a little strange after a while. And then I started saying, well, I really need to spend more time at the border, documenting it with my own photography, 
And then, you know, it wasn't too much later that I'm at, you know, I'm in the refugee camp uh, in Tijuana uh, at the Benito Juarez Sports Complex, seeing the real ramifications of all this stuff and incorporating that into my work. So I like to think of my work as being something that is honest in the sense that I am I'm not inherently a political activist, but I am absolutely connected to it on whatever level that relates to the, the border. And also, I am at a distance of 300 miles and being in Los Angeles and having my studio in Los Angeles, I'm not at the border on every day. I'm not, I'm not someone who lives at the border, mm-hmm. right? My, there, there are artists that, that, that grew up in Tijuana and went to school in San Diego, right, uh, uh, in, in the 70s. And, and those people, they have a very different relationship to the border than I do. I'm trying to be honest about, like, I, I'm, I'm only a quarter Mexican. So I take that into account, right? It's like, I'm, it's not an autobiographical project. It's not a political project exclusively. It's part of someone who has spent their lives thinking of themselves and think, thinking of myself as an artist who takes into account the kind of obvious and subtle ways in which I've been informed by, mm. by the border. Well, and to be able to examine the ways in which you are of something and also removed from it. You know, two two things in that way can be true simultaneously. And and what I think is so interesting about it, as a person who also grew up in Los Angeles, I, I have friends who, by the way, grew up in Tijuana and were going to school in San Diego. Um, so I know of their experience, but again, I am not of it. And I... I don't have a personal, you know, experience in my family of the U.S.-Mexico relationship, but I have personal experience of immigration being that my grandmother came to the U.S. from Italy on a boat, you know, came through Ellis Island. My dad immigrated here in the late 60s and became a citizen in the 90s. Um So it's interesting to realize that we all have these touch points. You know, we all have these degrees of closeness and separation to what being a citizen means, what being a neighbor means, what being an immigrant means. You know, many of these things are true for us simultaneously. And and why I enjoy having conversations like this and, and viewing art like yours is because I think it matters that we get still and check in with what all of this means, with what we might consider to be existing in our periphery, which is in fact not. It is, you know, we we are, to your point, on this plane together. And and I think there are so many things that do depersonalize that. You know, the, the satellite imagery is easier to look at than the neighbor who is threatened in a way that I am not. So whatever can bring us back to each other feels very exciting to me and important. Yeah. And it's, and it's, and it's uh, inexhaustible. It's, it's beautifully inexhaustible, right? You don't get tired of it because... It's a, it's a, it's a compass heading and it, and it just always allows you to focus on your starting point, but not necessarily know where the end point is. And I think, uh, as creators, we, we, 
this is where intuition is so important. I never questioned why this was something worth my while. I never thought, oh, I need to do something that's pseudo-political and, you know, like I never, it it just felt right because it felt like it was meeting a lot of different needs within my psyche and within, within my emotional state about reconciling where I am with who I am, with what I like and what I'm interested in. And 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 so anyone who has a chance to do that, I think is, has the greatest, it's just, it's just incredibly profound. Mm -hmm. You, you've said that you found that this line that divides our two countries is something that we need to examine beyond culture and politics. And yet here we are having such deep conversation about both culture and politics. So what, what do you mean by that? When, when, you, when you say you want to look beyond that, where, where do we look? Well, it's funny. I mean, in January, uh, a colleague and I started recording the border. We started going down and I, I'm, I'm very hostile to the idea that all the information we get about the border is through news, you know, newscasts and news feeds and topical stories. The people that live along the border, uh, it's in many cases their backyard. Mm-hmm. And I find it fascinating that the the farther you are away from the U.S.-Mexican border, that there's a tendency to be more uh, xenophobic. The closer you get to the border, people tend to be like, think it's ridiculous and disgraceful that there is a border. Hmm. You know, that if you live in in uh, you know, the Midwest or like you, you think of this as a, as an absolutely antagonistic relationship. So a lot of my work is about uh, kind of moving away from that. Uh, uh, polarized way of thinking about it. So we're going down to the border to record. And what we're trying to do is use the sounds that you would never associate with the border. Things that, things that would, that are just there, but are never revealed because of the politics of the situation. Right. Uh, I mean, I was struck with the very first thing, the very first thing we recorded was a swarm of bees along a, a, a creek that runs parallel to the border mm. like when i thought about oh i'm going to record i'm going to go down the border what am i first thing i'm going to record we purposely avoided the border checkpoints then we went to some more remote stretches and just to kind of cat- make catalogs of sounds that were that were there they're things that need people need to hear so that we sort of modulate our our thinking of it with something a lot more i hate to always use the word po- poetic but but it definitely like puts us in a different mindset well, so and we, something we were, more natural, something more about yeah. the ecosystem, something more about the ebb and flow that existed, to your point, before we tore down internment camps and put up a border wall. I'm, I'm struck by conversations I've heard along, you know, the border fence in those cities, uh, the music that you get to listen to. Um, there, to your point, there's so much that is not systematized and, um, about checking papers and we just, we don't often get shown those things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we put contact mics on the border, uh, because of these, these steel bollard, uh, these sort of 15, 20 foot long hollow steel posts 
So listening, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's, it was very meaningful to me to listen to the wind hitting the tops of the posts and having that sound travel down inside the tubes of the steel supports, recording those as, you know, as, as, as important as the images of the border are, the physicality of it, the sort of texture of that space can, can, can be described in a lot of different types of ways. And, um, you know, listening, you know, we were talking about Hakumba, this, this sort of town that was cut in half by the border. We recorded uh, the town, the twin towns, Hakumbe and Hakumba, which are across from each other, separated by the wall. We recorded the morning, like uh, the dawn between the two cities and hearing, you know, roosters on one side and, uh, you know, traffic on one side, like just hearing this, both cities rise at the same time was just really wonderful. And, and uh, yeah, there, there is a naturalness there that has to be understood because it counteracts the weight of, of the border as a systemized enforcement of difference. Mm. We have to remind ourselves of it as a, as a place of a continuum. And if we don't do that, then we lose sight of, of its truer nature. A continuum, I really like that. And there's been some great artists that have, that have really worked with, with that. I mean, I don't know if you saw uh, uh, the teeter-totter wall that uh, Ronald Real did. Um, he's a professor of architecture at Berkeley. And uh, he has a wonderful book called Border Wallace Architecture. And it's all of these designers and architects thinking of different ways to re-envision the border. Uh, for example, to build uh, called Border Wallace Architecture. And he invited uh, many, many designers and architects to sort of reconfigure the space. And you have all these different ideas of what the border could be. His was the teeter-totter wall, and he I was actually made that, right? Used the, used the border as a, as a fulcrum for, for play and for communication. But others have designed like uh, libraries, right? Like you make the space a place that's a library where, you, where both sides could come in and talk, interface, uh, have, have places to, to calm down, read. Like you could, you could make the porter could be so much more interesting and so much more to its actual, uh, I don't know, to a more generous self than it is. We've taken it to the end extreme of military fortress. We can still have a United States and Mexico. That's not the question. The question is, you know, people always kind of like, well, you either have a wall or it's open borders, right? It's like, it's got to be one or the other. But the fact is that, it, you know, we could devise systems that allow for uh, community, like think of national communities rather than uh, national players. When, when you think about that militarization, I'm, I'm curious, you've been working on this project for a long time now. And obviously in the last four years with the Trump administration taking a hold of the country, have the policies that we've seen changing, the um, intensification of border trauma, the separation of families at the border, uh, have those things affected 
your work with the wall, both in your access to it and in your perspective of it? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's those situations. I mean, it's, it's a human tragedy. And my, my impulse is that the, the, the best reaction to it is immediate action. It's not to make art, right? You, you volunteer, you, you, you give money to like border angels and uh, group different groups that, you know, uh, you know, places that, that need money just to have water for, for migrants crossing in the middle of the desert. They have, you know, way stations that with, you know, the most simple things, right? Like, like, uh, 50 gallon barrels of water with flags attached to it so that people know that that's a place where they can get water as they cross the United States. Um, art seems really feeble in comparison to, to, to direct human tragedy, right? So that aspect of, of, of my relationship is, is very different than the making art part. Uh, but some of the images I did have taken of say the refugee camps, it has, it has made itself into my work mainly as a way of dispelling the way in which like journalistic photographers frame everything. Mm. So journalists often look for them, the soundbite photograph, right? They look for the way in which you could say, oh, so here's all the information in one photograph. And it looks very, um, and because these, these, these people are so good at, as photographers, it often looks uh, oddly aestheticized. Like it, it, I don't know how, it's funny, human beings, we, we, we react to tragedy based on empathy. Mm. Often that can be exploited in art in such a way where your pain is greater than their pain. <laughs> I don't know, like, I don't know how to explain it. It's like you wound up, you wind up feeling bad. When really, there's only one thing that happens, their situation needs to be better, Right. The, you need we we need to address some of these situations immediately. There's situations all over the world. The best thing to do is to donate if you have money, right? To to NGOs and to and to organizations that are direct, directly there. That's they're going to do. That's going to do a lot more work than anything I do. However, there are artists that, that take a more confrontational confrontational approach with political activism. Um, and uh, one thing I've learned from uh, this artist group called Post Commodity is that they, they really believe that if you're going to make work about the border, you actually do have to interface significantly with communities along the border. So that's something I've, I've, I've definitely started to incorporate into the work more, is not just the seeing it solely from a kind of uh, aesthetic view, but also really start to incorporate the voices uh, at the border. It is a never ending project. Right. Um, and, and, uh, again, the further you get into it, the more, the more wonderful and subtle it is, but also the voices can get much louder and more emphatic. Mm. And that's, that's something that I'm continuing to work on. And it is a, it is a balance between immediate aid, action, activism, and, the expression that you as an individual feel called to create. I do think that to your point, a lot of people get desensitized to these photojournalist images, not to say they aren't beautiful or important. They are, but when we see so much of something, 
we can begin to dull to it, which takes me back to what I was explaining to the listeners at the beginning of this conversation, this magnetic draw that I had to your work at the Annenberg space. And it makes me think, you know, art has the power to change minds in a way at times that other mediums just can't. They don't, they don't cut to the emotional core and then open us to the emotional experience of the subject in the piece. Why do you think that art can be such a great mind changer or mind opener? I'm primarily because it's seductive in a way that few things are, mm. right? It's, uh, I, I feel like when I'm, I'm literally trying to seduce the viewer to look at the work. I often, one of my main strategies is to make something interesting enough and visually interesting enough to, to let you, give you a moment to look a little deeper. So like when you were saying you, you were attracted to the color, right? In, in those paranoid architecture people. That was intentional. That's exactly what I wanted to have happen. I wanted you to not know that it was about the border. I wanted you to, to just sort of be drawn to it. And then, as you said, the very steps that you were talking about, the more that you saw those central images, that you realized, oh my God, this is about, this is into a something else. And that's, the, that's what art can do. It's not give you the obvious picture. It can give you the important picture. Uh, what we confuse obvious for important all the time. And, and, and good art uh, never dwells ever dwells on the obvious good art always dwells on the uh, the latent you know what 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 comes after the second third fourth fifth movement in work and um, i think with that too unlike a lot of forms of communication art can continue to resonate even when you're not around it you know a photograph or a good film or a good piece of music can linger in your mind, not just because it's catchy, although that does happen too, but it, it, it can linger because you still have questions about it. Why, why did that, why, why was that, why did that artist decide to take Trump's prototype walls and turn them into kind of a, a weird abstract theater of color? Like, why? And so that, that feedback loop within the mind of the viewer um, creates a virtual uh, rereading of the experience. And, and so, so you walk away with having more questions than answers. That's what art's good at. And that's why I love it. You know, I mean, that's, it, it fulfills that, um, that otherwise troubling relationship with information and experience and puts it on a, on a more consistent note of sustainability mm. and regeneration. So when you I, love that, I love that about art. Yeah, I, just, I do too. Just, the intimacy of it, really. Yeah. Because what's interesting is whether you you use the word seductive, to me, art feels so intimate. And all of those words are representative of a, of a space that is within, you know, that, that really is personal, that is in, in the heart, in the body. And I think about the way that it can put us inside of ourselves and also put the subjects inside of us, it creates a closeness. Yeah. 
when you think about that closeness, the the intimate experience that people have when they are viewing your art, when you're working on a series, do you do you think about how people will interpret it? Can you not be bothered to do that? Do you want people to interpret your work in their own way or are you really hoping that they will see it in the way that you see it? What what is that experience like as an artist? Uh, you know, uh, I like it when I'm impressed by my own work. <laughs> I like it. And by that, I don't mean by like in an ego sense, like literally, I, I love the moment I, when I like, I'll work in the studio for hours and I go, Jesus, I'm like, I'm not, I don't know what I'm doing. It's, it's just, it just feels like an incredible uphill struggle and I'll come back the next day. And it's like, like, uh, you know, a genie had put, something magical on the wall. Like it, it feels, it feels as if I didn't make it. It feels as if it came out from some other source. And when I get that real, like sort of ecstatic idea that the things I've been working on when looked, look refreshing rather than, Oh, it's exactly the way I wanted it to look. So I have, you know, you have to, you have to, not look at your work to to see it uh, uh, you have to put it away mentally and visually sometimes in order just to be have a fresh look at it and then if it does impress you not because of your skills but because it it just it sort of has its own relational harmony or it, or it has its own little dance it's doing on its own that that's when I feel really gratified because I know that's what's going to happen to other people and that's a very subjective thing, but it, you know, with enough make, making of art, one begins to trust uh, your little victory laps uh, <laughs> that you get from seeing your own work. Like you, you see, oh, this is this is th- this is a work that's thriving, right? It's it's self propelled, and when I when I see that happening, I know that that's going to happen for other people. Mm. Like 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 that, Paranoid Architecture was a series. This is my first digital series, right? I'd never really worked with Photoshop to that extent and combined photography with it. But when I, when I, when I started getting towards the final result, it seemed like I was sort of fascinated by it. It seemed like a kind of like an alternative uh, portfolio I'd find in a library from a completely different culture. Like it felt very strange, but it felt very attractive. And once I knew that started to happen, I realized that I was on something that other people could access too. It's, it's, it's true of all art. Making art is about, about finding, um, people say it's like finding your own voice. And I really don't like that. I think it's more like finding your own ear. It's like the echo, your voice does its thing independent of you, but if it hears, it sounds good after it bounces off against the wall, then it's good. Like finding your ear is really where, where it's at. That's really interesting. Well, I, for one, can confirm how, you know, striking the experience was because now I have four of those pieces up in my home. <laughs> Terrific. Yeah, it's very, it's very cool. I'm very, I'm very proud to own them. I'm very honored. Thanks. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about this project, you know, the the photographs of the 
wall samples, the recordings that you're taking, um, some of the things I was able to see when I came to tour your studio, what, how would you describe this project that you are working on now? Where, where is this leading you? That's interesting. Uh, well, this, this, this sound, the sound works are very important. Um, the, the idea that this is going to be this, uh, uh, I, I have visions of, of, of cutting an album. Mm. Right. Cause I think records are kind of fascinating as objects that evoke sound using the border recordings and we're going to play with them. We're not going to make music, but we are trying to make, and they're not field recordings. So we're going to try and do something that's a hybrid where the sound of the border is extracted. It creates an, like an environment in the sense that you can, you can listen to this and experience the border without it being physically in front of you, which is the same quality that the, the, the works on paper and paintings have. Like, how do you experience something without photography or without, you know, film? Like, how do you experience it as my experience through, you know, the way I see the border? So the projects are, in a way, I've been thinking a lot more about bringing the physicality of the border to you personally. And so one thing I did the last couple of visits was I started taking these, these small boulders from the border and putting them in my studio. And uh, uh, thinking about casting them out of steel so that they are the same material as the border, but have the same shape and cra- crags and crevices of the actual thing. So th- there's a, there's a, idea of the site non-site the idea that there's a sort of space of documentation but also a space of presence even though they are you know miles and miles and miles apart they they still describe each other completely so all the work is getting into some extent more of a like weirdly more archaeological or more um yeah i uh so the 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 paintings i'm working on now are images of uh the ground like they're these odd very dry photographs of literally the border itself like the the ground at the border and then through a combination of of photography and painting i'm making them in these kind of like almost radioactive spaces, like these psychically dense spaces. Mm. So the color is pushed, the the linear movements are pushed, so that you, on first glance, they look like abstract paintings, but they and they're very vibrant. But really, they're they're documents of the border itself, and not just the border, but also my experience of the border. So everything's starting to have this kind of smaller view, um, kind of a more of a microscopic view of the land itself. I mean, one of the oddest experiences I had a few months ago was, you know, they're continually building new stretches of border wall. Mm-hmm. And I was able to, uh, we, we went to a, a section, which for some reason, nobody was there, where there was a fence that just ended. And then there were trenches where new concrete's going to be poured and new fences are going to be installed. And I was able to get inside those trenches, like literally to be inside the border and take photographs of this sort of weird channel that 
for all intents and purposes, is the exact delineation of the United States and Mexico. And, uh, you know, so what do I do with those? I, 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 try, I try and figure out ways in which taking this information, bringing it back to the viewer in a space that's very, very far away from the actual event. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, it, 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 the more time I spend down there, the more my relationship changes to it, the more subtle my ears and eyes are, um, and the more I'm interested in uh, seeing it as a natural environment and less as a political, an oppressive political uh, uh, delineation. I'm, I'm interested in that with the people I meet too. So, you know, we're going to start a project on, on interviews. People live on the border trying to figure out ways to, to make a sort of communion between you know, it's just sort of heal the border's often been talked about as a scar, right? Like a physical scar in the earth in the sense that wow. the wound is the, is the division of the two countries. The border is a scar. How do you heal a scar? Art is the way to heal a scar. Star doesn't go away necessarily. You're not going to get the same skin that you have. It's it's not going to happen. But but you through art you can you can if not outright heal you can approach the possibility of healing. And all the all the artists I know that work along the border that is their goal to sort of alleviate some form of the trauma that um, that exists there. To approach the possibility of healing feels really yeah. Because we're not God, you know. We're not politicians. We're not policymakers. Mm-hmm. Can't make it go away. And uh, but but we all have the uh, possibility of of signaling a better way and a better way of thinking, uh, a more generous way, a more kinder way. Um. Art has always pushed, has been progressive in interesting ways, right? Not always, you know, art revolutionizes the world very, in a way, very differently than political revolutions. But it is just as effective. Yeah, I mean, historically, art has often created the personal emotions necessary to shift policy. Culture, Culture sets policy, so... Exactly. So that's, so, and we forget that, you know, we, we put so much emphasis on the political, but everyone can participate in rearranging our thought process so that we can accommodate a better vision for the future. Mm-hmm. But we, it, it's, you know, you can't just say it. You have to, you have to feel it. You can't even just think it. You have to feel it. And that's where art comes in. I love that. So when you think about all of this, where you are, what you're working on, uh, the, the personal, the political, the intersections of all of them, the, the professional. When you think about having a conversation on a platform titled Work in Progress, mm-hmm. I'm curious what in this moment feels like a work in progress in your life right now. Wow. Can you, can you sort of reframe that a little bit? I, I just wonder, you know, because the the phrase... I almost think about Mad Libs, you know, the, the phrase work in progress always brings something to mind for people. And so as we've sat in this space, you know, we've talked about a lot 
um, yeah. across personal, professional, political lenses. And I'm just curious what, what feels like a work in progress to you right now in any of those spaces? I have, you know, it's, I have a lot of faith in the notion of professionalism. Hmm. When, I, when I saw some of those um, people come up and testify in Congress, the one thing I was just blown away by was the quality of some of these uh, people that testified about the, you know, the Biden, the Biden gate or whatever you want to call it. And they were, and the, the woman that was, I forget her name, the woman was the ambassador that was, or not ambassador, but, um, you know, attache to the Ukraine who was so articulate and so focused about what she was doing that the work in progress for me that I'm reminded of is, is holding yourself to a really high standard of professionalism in a world that wants to be like basically usurped by hacks, (laughs) you know, like, Mm -hmm. I feel like, I feel like, attention to detail, attention to focus, um, and keeping, keeping this sense that what I'm about and what I'm doing, the standard of it is the kind of standard that I would, I would hope everyone approaches within their own realms mm-hmm. and whatever profession, whether they're the parents or whatever, it's like really define what's valuable and really define your method. Mm-hmm. Your method and your value have to be, you know, they have to be part and parcel of the same objective. And and not and we forget we we tend to focus on one or the other. What's my method? Um, but we have it has to match, and that's where professionalism comes in, right? To be a true professional means here is my goal, and this is the way I do it, and those two maximize my voice and maximize my sound mm. and, and the work in progress then becomes as all as I get more information and new experiences really focus on what is it that I'm doing that is right there with my aims and my experiences mm. how the message come across in a way that's as clean and effective and lean so that I don't fall into stereotypes, even my own stereotypes. It's so easy to fall into your own stereotypes. And uh, I'm always always working against that. That is what professionalism is. I love that. I mean, mean, one of the things I'm impressed about your your podcast is like, and and I'm so honored to be part of this incredibly large net (laughs) that you have. You are the greatest fisherman I've ever seen. The, the way that you 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 are able to throw out both this multiplicity of of voices like you want to hear what people have to say and at the same time you allow for a kind of constant within each interview with each podcast so that we always feel as if we know where we stand and we know that uh, it's going to be something that is is beautifully uh, uh, possible for us to digest, like like really cons- consume it in a really healthy way, and that's tricky. You know, not everyone can do that to take that big thing and that intimate thing and have them as part of the same meal. Wow, 
That's really kind, Tony. Thank you. I I think to your point, that rigorous self-examination, the always checking in to make sure you're not dusty or that you haven't succumbed to some, you know, subconscious or cultural stereotype that that you're interacting with humanity and listening that's that's the exercise of this that's that's the joy in this for me is always being able to get out you know and and then to really dig in it it feels um like a great shaking off but also i hope um like a tender and safe space to examine together and if that's if that's what we're doing here, then I'm thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it is yeah. very much like what you're doing is very much in the spirit of an artistic process, right? Which is your intuition guides you to to move to a certain location or to head in a certain direction. And then once once you're there, you don't say, Here's what I want to do with you. You say, Look, how can we figure out where we are? because we both arrived at this place independently and now we're together in this one place and what can come out of that? That is essentially the studio experience. I love that. Wow. I want to, you know, I always want to come hang at the studio. So that, that feels (laughs) really, that feels really cool. Oh yeah. I know. I, you know, sometimes I love having people come over when I work because a lot of my work is very sort of pedantic and you're just sort of like you're doing one thing and you're, you know, it doesn't take a lot of super focus. And, and it's always fun to have conversations while I'm doing that because I know that for people who think of art as an otherwise wise mystical process, right? Like, oh, the magic that happens in the studio, a lot of it is really just beautifully mundane. And to have conversations with people and to, to let them into that, uh, that sacred space is really, it's really liberating for me because, you know, oftentimes it's just, I'm alone. Hmm. That's so cool. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. Our editor is Josh Windish. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Brilliant Anatomy. 